if you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 38. Psalm 38, we're going to do Psalms 38 through 41 and close out the first section of the book of Psalms. When we finish, I'll explain how the Psalms are divided into five sections. But if you're there in Psalm 38, a psalm, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance, to bring to remembrance. When I think of bringing things to remembrance, I think of remembering the good things, remembering the faithfulness of God in my life, the blessings of the past or even the present. And it's good to remember those good times, those blessings, the faithfulness of the Lord, because life does not only consist of those things. There are many things that come into our lives that are hardship or pain or or loss. And if we don't have those good things to remember of our past, if we don't have God's faithfulness that sustained us and got us through some things, then when we are going through a difficult time, it'll be even that much more difficult. So our life doesn't only consist of the good times, but we need to remember those things. And when we're encouraged to remember, as David encourages us in this psalm, I always think of the scripture in Joshua 4 where it speaks about remembering God's faithfulness. So hold your finger in Psalm 38 and turn with me to Joshua chapter 4. Just to get a context of what it it means to remember those things that God has done in your life. Joshua 4, we're going to read seven verses. And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's foot stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask, In time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. Stones of remembrance, remembering God's faithfulness. So, when I'm encouraged or exhorted in the scriptures to remember something, my mind always goes back to this sign. We should all have stones of remembrance, whatever those are in our lives. Maybe we journal. 
Maybe there's something specific, something, so, something that reminds us of God's faithfulness. Hang on to those things so that you can remind yourself. And maybe if it's something that, that you have around the house or something that other people see or your children see they can, and they ask you, what is this? You can explain. This is a stone of remembrance for God's faithfulness in my life. Don't forget. Don't forget those things that God is doing. So it's good to remember. It's good to meditate on God's goodness so we don't become discouraged when we're going through a difficult time. But David isn't speaking of that type of remembrance in this psalm. David is speaking of another time that he's exhorting us to remember. David is speaking of those times when we sin against God. And why would David want us to remember those times? Well, just as we remember the faithfulness of God, just as we remember the good things, the blessings of our past, so that we can be encouraged in times of discouragement, we need to remember those times of separation from God. What does that feel like? What... Is what is going on in our minds, in our hearts, and in, even in our bodies that will just cause us not to go in that direction again. And that's why David wants us to remember. I'm also reminded of Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, and you don't have to turn there, but it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it, can, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. We need to remember what that feels like when God doesn't hear us because of our sin. So the main point of this psalm is to bring to remembrance the depravity of our nature and our tendency to disobey God. And if we're able to bring to mind that distance, that feeling of separation when we sin, then maybe we may fall into those things less and less in the future. And I think that's certainly a good thing. So, in verse 1, in Psalm 38, a psalm of David to bring to remembrance O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. So David's remembering here a time when his sin has caused God to rebuke him. Any sin that we commit is a separation from God, and it's deserving of his wrath, deserving of his judgment. Any sin we commit, sin is being off the mark, off the target, off of that path that God wants us to be on. And we should never want to experience that wrath of God, like David is expressing here. But yet we continue to fall into those things. We're just, it's, it's just part of our nature. And I think after reading and studying this psalm, I think we can get a better idea of what we need to do not to fall into these things as often as we may have in the past. In verse 2 he says, For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. 
We start to see here the depth of the misery that David's sin has caused him. And our sin should affect us in the same way. Then in verses 3 through 8, it says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. David's in a pretty bad place. You know, he's just expressing that feeling of what it's like to be separated from God in our sin. And it seems to be that it's affecting him physically also. There's an unrest in his physical being. And sometimes our sin directly can cause physical infirmities, whether it's an addiction of some type or just uh, you know, some, some physical effect and result of our sin. But I think also the heavy weight of our, of our sin, the heavy weight of God's judgment can also affect our health. Just a heavy burden, he says in verse 4. Too heavy for me. But I contrast that when I, when I read that verse... It's not too heavy for Jesus. See, Jesus not only took your sin upon him on the cross, he took the sins of the whole world. And it wasn't too heavy for Jesus. See, nothing is too much for our Lord and Savior. So that's why he says in the New Testament to cast your cares upon him. Actually, to throw them down upon him. Because he can handle it. We can't. Sin is foolishness, it says. My wounds are foul, in verse 5, and festering because of my foolishness. So whether it's something actually physical that's going on in David's life, or it's just that feeling, or the heaviness of, of God's wrath against him, it's, he describes it as foolishness. In Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the opposite of the foolishness of our sin is to understand and, and have knowledge of God and His ways and His law and to fear the Lord, to ha- be in awe of Him. And that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the opposite of the foolishness we see in our sin. And in verses 6 through 8, we see the misery of David as he recognizes his sin. And I think to, to myself, if only we mourned over our sin like David does. I don't ever remember myself being able to express these words like David did over my sin. And I think this may be a way, if we, after we meditate on this psalm, maybe going forward we would mourn over our sin like David does. His heart is broken because of his sin. 
You know, we sing, we sang on Sunday uh, a line in one of the songs says, break my heart for what breaks yours. Our hearts should break for those things that break God, God's heart. We should be in line with him, not working against his ways. So our hearts should be broken too. We should mourn over that. And then in verse 9, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. See, David's starting to understand here that his complaining isn't in vain, that God hears and responds, and he continues to be there. When we're ready to repent, he's there to receive us. Then in verses 10 through 14, my heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my relatives stand afar off. Some of us might say that that's a good thing. <laughs> Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. He repeats that thought. See, he's continuing to describe here the consequences of his sin. One of them, he loses family and friends because of his sin. And maybe it's because you're just stuck in a, such a sinful lifestyle. Maybe, maybe before you got saved that just... Everyone just scattered from you. They just didn't want to be around you anymore. That you were a miserable person. That you were just you're, 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 you were consumed by your sinfulness. And so, why would anyone want to be around someone like you? So I can see that. And there are some addictions that will result in our loss of friends and of family. And so that might be an effect. And then our enemies may see our condition or sense our condition and then see the weakness and they say, okay, that's an opening for us to get in and to attack. In verse 12, it says, those who also seek my life lay snares for me. When you are in a weakened state because of your sin, your enemies will see an opening and come in and attack. But David, in verses 13 and 14, he didn't pay any mind to those attacks. And I like this about David. No matter, even, even though he was going through a really difficult time here, obviously he was, he was feeling the results of sin. He didn't plot revenge. He didn't open his mouth against his enemies. He responded like Jesus responded. It says in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, speaking of Jesus. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a slam to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So David responded like the son of David responded. Then in verse 15 of Psalm 38, For in you, O Lord, I hope, you will hear, O Lord, my God. So David's starting to now come around come out of his doldrums and declare his trust in the Lord to hear and to respond. 
And what I love about this is that the situation that he found himself in caused him to turn to God, not to turn away from God. And I think we can take comfort in the fact that that anything in our life that causes us to turn to God, that drives us to God, should be considered a blessing in our life. Even if the situation or the circumstance in and of itself isn't what you would call a blessing, but if it causes you to look to God, to, to return to God, then ultimately it is a blessing. So that's the perspective that David gives us. And then in verses 16 through 20, he says, For I said, Hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous, and they are strong, and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries, because I follow what is good. Sometimes that's the only reason you have an enemy, because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That might be all that people need to know about you, and they become your adversary. But I see here in verse 18 the beauty of David's confession. It says, I will declare my iniquity. God, I am putting myself before you, declaring my sin before you. And I'm in sorrow because of it. David says, I am in anguish over his, his sin. And, and our attitude needs to be the same about our sin. But we still should confess to God those things. And then closing out the psalm in verses 21 and 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord, my God. Do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So David's faith is restored. We see again, taking us through that journey of, of just feeling the heaviness, the weight of his sin, of God's wrath upon him, turning to God, crying out to him, receiving, confessing, receiving forgiveness, and then recognizing who it is that his, is his Savior, who his faith should be in, who he should be trusting. And I think of this psalm and the beginning of it, and I think of the usefulness of those remembrances in our life. How we need to remember the good and also those times when we are separated from God. And it helps us walk that straight path that he wants us to walk. So Psalm 39. To the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Jeduthun, um, was it, he's mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 15, it says he was ordained for song in the house of the Lord with cymbals, psalteries, and harps. So he was... Uh, musician, worship leader, and, um, and it even says that his children followed in his footsteps. And he, they were part of the worship team. So um, I, I like this when, they, when David mentions a specific worship leader, a specific musician. 
that he, he wrote this song for to be used in the, um, in the house of the Lord to be sung. And he says um, in verse 1, I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good and my sorrow was stirred up. So we see a recurring theme here. Like in the previous psalm, David exhibits restraint in his speech. I, how well would we do if we had better restraint in our speech? Sometimes we just speak, sometimes without thinking. And that reminds me of an old saying, and I tried to find out the source of it, and it was a few different, few different sources, so just suffice to say it's an old saying, better to remain silent and be thought of a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. Sometimes our words are just unnecessary. It says in Proverbs 10, 19, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. You know, when you go to a lot of funerals, sometimes you just don't know what to say. You know, and, and, and it's hard because you want to give comfort to the families. And you, you want to be able to say some really pithy words of wisdom that they'll take and, and be able to meditate on and just be a source of, of comfort for them. But to be perfectly honest with you, I've noticed that the fewer words, the better in those, in those things. People just need to see that you're there and, and just um, appreciate that you're, you're there to support them. And um, uh, my condolences sometimes is just enough. You know, I love you. I'll be praying for you. You know, and so, you know, we need to be really thoughtful um, before we speak, not to just open our mouths. So um, David's speaking here of, um, of not responding to those who are coming against him. And although we're tempted a lot of times to do that, sometimes it's best just to remain silent. And I think David also says here that He's, uh, he, he might have some unbelieving thoughts that he would like to silence rather than allow those expressions of sin to, to come out of his mouth. Sometimes, as David was going through a difficult time, it's better to listen than to speak. It's better to seek counsel and just listen or go to the Lord in prayer than it is to speak. And then he, he says... In verse 2, I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. So I think what David's expressing to us there is that there, there eventually comes a time where we can't hold it in any longer, that his sorrow became overwhelming and he needed to express it. And hopefully, he expresses it with, with wisdom and with godliness. Verses 3 through 6 it says, my heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Now, I'm not sure if that's such a great thing. 
while you're hot and while you're, you're burning up, then to start to speak. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. Selah. Surely, every man walks about like a shadow. Surely, they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. These verses, verses 4 through 6, we say a lot at funerals especially for those who have died uh, prematurely, as we would think of it. You know, we just had uh, a man in the fellowship pass away at age 46, and that's young. But um, we, we need to ask God to help us understand our frailty in this life, the brevity of this life, not, not to know the time of our end or even the nature of our end, but just to remain mindful that in an instant things can change. And David also prays for understanding and wisdom to live this life, whatever years we may have, in light of eternity. See, everything we do in this life should be done in light of eternity. Because this life is but a vapor. It goes away very quickly. But we will be forever into eternity. Uh, just to get context on this, on this idea, turn to Luke chapter 12. just going to read you a parable of Jesus to sort of put this into context. Luke chapter 12 and verse 16. It says, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich Toward God. The lesson, obviously, there is to lay up treasures in heaven, to live this life in light of eternity, to live this life for God's kingdom, not for your own kingdom. And that isn't speaking against building wealth or, or being successful, but it's just where is your focus? What are your priorities? And this man, obviously, all of his priorities were in his, his success and his wealth, and he just wanted to store it up for those years that he was going to live. And we don't know. 
We don't know when that might end. So going forward in Psalm 39, verses 7 through 13, it says, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth, surely every man is vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain my strength before I go away and am no more. So in verse 7, we see David asking, and I think rhetorically, what do I wait for? You, Lord, are who I should be hoping in. You, I need to place my trust in. What else do I need to wait for? David asks. It's like when in, in John 6, after, um, after Jesus taught a difficult teaching to the disciples, Peter says, uh, Jesus says to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Remember when everybody left? Because it was such a difficult teaching. And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where are we to turn? Where are we to go? What do I wait for, David says, when it's God who has all the answers? Our hope is in Jesus. Where else should we look? And in verse 8, he speaks of prayer. He says, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. David is praying. He's praying a general prayer for all of his transgressions, sort of covering all the bases in, in, of his sin in case he misses one. And then in particular, he says, don't, don't make me the reproach of the foolish. In other words, this prayer is asking God not to allow our sin to be an opportunity for an unbeliever to blaspheme God. That's a good prayer. God, don't allow my sin to become an opportunity for someone else to speak against you. And he, he recognizes two characteristics of God in verse 10. He recognizes that the afflictions are sent or allowed by God, and they're also removed by God. So God is, is there, even in the midst of, of David's afflictions. And again, he makes reference to be, life being short, the brevity of this life, like a vapor. And it gives us perspective. I think it should. The afflictions are allowed by God, and eventually they're removed by God. And they have a purpose. See, that's what I love, and what we can see in the times of difficulty that we go through, is that the afflictions we go through are for a purpose. They're for correction. The correction of a loving father towards his child. And we're subject, because of the fallen nature of this world, to those things. But God can even use them in our lives. So moving on to Psalm 40. 
Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm, which means that it speaks prophetically of Jesus. And verses 6 through 8 are even quoted in the New Testament. They're quoted in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, and it references Jesus Christ. And we see also David declaring his responsibility in that communication, in that relationship with God, to cry out to God and then wait patiently. And then we see God's response in hearing and even being mindful of David. And we can apply that to ourselves too. So in verses 1 through 3, we see David records thanksgiving, a personal thanksgiving, and also a declaration of God's goodness to all believers. So in verse 1 it says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. So we see here in verse 1, we see the two parts of the relationship with God. Our praying and waiting. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. Difficult, as we've spoken of in the past. And then God's part, His condescension to us and then his response to us. And then we see in verse 2 the four aspects of God's goodness. We see the depth of his goodness. He brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. How many times we find ourselves in a situation where we feel like we're just, we're just sinking. We're in quicksand. And there's no way we can, we can do anything about it. I don't know if this is true. I, I don't know if it's a legend or not. They say that if you get caught in quicksand, that the more you move, the, the, the quicker you sink. You know, there's just nothing you, you can do. So the depth of his goodness is that he pulled us out. He brought, brought David out of that. He'll bring us out of those difficult things. The, the times when there, there's no way we could do anything because the more we do, the worse it gets. God brought us out of those things. And then the height of His goodness. He set His feet upon the rock. I love that. So not only does He bring Him out of the pit, but He sets Him upon solid ground. How God does that to us brings us out of those things and sets us upon the rock, which is Jesus. The faith and the hope of our feet setting upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ. And then the width or breadth of His goodness. He's a, he establishes our steps, it says in verse 2. Puts us on solid ground so we could continue to walk with Him. Because if we're not on that rock, which is Jesus, if we're sinking in the midst of our sin or our depravity, if we're just going under, we can't walk with God. There's no way. So He brings us out of that. He sets us upon the rock and He allows us to just walk with Him on solid ground. 
And He strengthens us through those difficult times. Because it's those times that I think we grow the most. It's those times when we feel closest to God in the difficulties that we go through, in our trials. Then in verses 4 and 5, it says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect, respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wondrous works, which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. We will be blessed, David says, if we trust in God instead of ourselves. A lot of times we put our trust in ourselves, in our own abilities. And we believe the lie that we can do it. We can do it apart from God. But I, I'm reminded of what it says in Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. See, you may be able to fool yourself into thinking that you can do it alone without God, but you can't. With men, Jesus says it's impossible. But with God all things are possible. And the works, the wondrous works of God that David says that I can't even count, that are too numerous to be numbered. The work of creation, the work of God's providence in our lives, the work of redemption at the cross, the work of grace that we see day by day, that mercy that's new each morning. And then throughout our day, we continually see grace. Just think about all of the blessings of God throughout your life. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you, you can't count them. It's impossible. And then the work of sanctification of God through the Holy Spirit, working in our lives, working in those, in those problems, those difficult times, drawing us to Him, causing us to, to seek Him more to grow in our relationship with Him. All of those things are God's wonderful works that David is speaking of. And it reminds me of the song that we sang on Sunday, 10,000 Reasons. How many reasons beyond number, beyond our ability to recount to God of His blessings toward us, how many reasons do we have to just, to just be in awe of Him, to worship Him? And I, and I love that. So in verses 6 through 10, David writes, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord. You yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. So David writes here about sacrifice and offering. He's speaking of those 
rituals, those religious rituals, this, this sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And he recognizes, even though he was in, still in the Old Covenant, David recognizes that those sacrifices weren't really what God desires. Excuse me. It's not the animal sacrifices. See, they were a type. They were a picture of the final sacrifice which would come in Jesus Christ. They represented the redemption of the people, but by the sacrifice of the one sinless one, Jesus. Jesus fulfilled those requirements when he went to the cross. He became the better sacrifice. Jesus declared the insufficient nature of the old covenant sacrifice. And he declared his willingness to offer that perfect sacrifice. You see, Jesus did it of his own willingness. He didn't have to be forced to do it. It says in Hebrews 10, sacrifice and offering you do not desire. It quotes this psalm in Hebrews 10. But a body you have prepared for me. What body was that? It was the earthly body of Jesus Christ. He came, he dwelt among us. He showed us his perfect life and then he went to the cross for our sins. That becomes the perfect sacrifice that, that God accepted. The sacrifice and offering that David is saying you did not desire is that old covenant. So David already saw that. And then we see the messianic aspect of this psalm. In verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. Jesus' submission to the Father's will in his obedience to go to the cross. And in Luke, we, we know the verse where it says, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But yours. And that's, a, that's something that we can apply to our lives. Not our will, God. Your will in my life. Your will is always better. My will will always get me into trouble. Your will is what I should be doing in my life. And in verse 10, it says he declares, he declares the righteousness of God. He doesn't hold it in. See, in the other Psalms, we saw how David was restraining his speech, restraining his tongue. Here, he says, I haven't hidden your righteousness in my heart. I've declared their faithfulness. I've not concealed your loving kindness. See, he's expressing those things. And I think we can do the same thing, pronouncing those blessings of God in our lives, telling people about his loving kindness, his faithfulness, not holding that in. And then in verses 11 through 17, it says, Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. 
O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. See, David now pleads with the Lord to preserve him. Our preservation comes from the truth of God's word. And I know that because as we get daily into the word of God, it preserves us from the trappings of this world. It preserves us from sin and temptation. It preserves us from the attractions of this world. As we daily get into his word, it preserves us from doubt and distrust and hesitation to follow him. As we daily get into his word, it preserves us from fear in times of difficulty. And we see in verse in verse 12, innumerable evils have surrounded me. It's funny because David just spoke in verse 5 of God's wonderful works, which were innumerable. Now he's speaking of innumerable evils. So I love that comparison there. Verse 12, the number of David's sins and those that are coming against him. And in verse 5, all of the innumerable thoughts of God's love toward him. And then in Psalm 41, also a messianic psalm, and it speaks of the mercies which are promised to those who consider the poor in verses 1 through 3. David also pleads for comfort in his own suffering and the betrayal of a close friend. And we'll see the messianic application of those verses. And then he closes with thanksgiving. So, verses 1 through 3. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies." The Lord will strengthen him on, a, on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. Verse 1, the blessings that result from considering the poor and the less fortunate. You know, we're in, a, we're in an awesome fellowship here that there's always opportunities for us to bless others that are less fortunate. Than, than many of us are. There's always opportunities for us to consider the poor. And David says here, blessed is he who considers the poor. If you've taken part in any of the outreaches, in any of the opportunities here, I know tomorrow we're giving out the backpacks to the, to the people, the children in the town that are less fortunate, that can't afford them. I, I, I think back... Last year, the first time we met Darren Larson, who organized the Neighbors Helping Neighbors in the midst of the flood of Irene 
in this town. People who were just wiped out completely. And if you saw any of the pictures, if you were here for the memorial today, and we have pictures, our, our fellowship hall was, looked like Walmart because of all the donations that came in, lining up all the clothing and the, and the, the, the medical supplies and the, and the health care items and, and everything that we just brought in to, to help out those people in, in need during the storm. And, and I think about that when I, when I think about the blessings that come from helping the poor, from considering the poor. I think about the, the Katrina relief and the Haiti relief that I know personally of, of teams that have gone down and just given of themselves for those who, who are less fortunate and go on, a, on an overseas mission trip sometime and see the, the poverty outside of this country and see if you don't get perspective on, on what you have. I think we learn gratitude. We gain perspective. What blessings come from, from us considering those less fortunate than we are. And we are rewarded for that by, by God. And that, sh that shouldn't be our motivation, of course. But God recognizes that. He's, he, he's honored by us doing that, by considering those less fortunate than us. To give you an idea of what this actually means, I want you to turn to Matthew 25. This is, again, this is the reason why we consider the poor. This is the reason why we consider those less fortunate. This is the reason why we think of others more than ourselves. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 33. You've, you're probably familiar with it. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison? And come to you. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of these, one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. What's our motivation for considering the poor, as it says in this psalm? Because when we do that, we bless Jesus. When we consider those less fortunate than us, we bless the Lord. And in turn, we're blessed. That's the motivation. So moving on in uh, Psalm 41, verses 4 through 6, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? 
If he, and if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. And da now David personalizes his prayer. His, his spiritual being is suffering because of his sin. He says, my, heal my soul, he says. And we should again feel that separation. Moving on through uh, verses 7 through 9. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And this is the messianic aspect to this psalm. We should recognize that those words, similar to what Jesus says in John 13. Right after Jesus washes the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper, Jesus says, he makes reference to the betrayal of Judas. He says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. And this is the scripture Jesus is speaking of. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. How much worse is betrayal when it's a f supposed to be a friend? How much worse is the betrayal or the hurt when it's someone who we thought was on our side and now all of a sudden turned against us? And certainly Jesus felt that. Someone who was supposed to be one of his close friends, one of, one of the few select. Of course, Jesus knew but that sense of, of betrayal of someone close to you, we can, we can feel. And in verse 10, it says, But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. This is our response. I don't know if it's the right response, that I may repay them. God, you know, uh, defend us so we can get up and we can be strengthened for, for the battle against them. That's okay, I guess, to pray. David does that. And then in verses 11 through 13, By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. We see God's favor upon David because he walked righteously with the Lord. We see his mercy and protection and grace over our lives because of our obedience. We can claim our integrity before God and man if we're obedient. God will sustain our Christ-like character if we're obedient. God will show favor toward us if we're obedient. And our eternal future is secure because of our obedience. And it ends with this benediction, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, speaking of the great I Am, Yahweh. Amen and amen. And David just doubly agrees with blessing the Lord. And so this... Psalm ends this first book, this first 
division in the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms, if you want to do a little research, it's actually been compared to the first five books of the Bible, five different divisions. So this division that we just went through is the division that's compared to the book of Genesis. And you see in these 41 Psalms, we see it compared to Genesis where we see man in a state of blessedness and then in his fallen state and then finally blessed by the gracious work of the Lord in salvation and redemption. So as we go through each section, you can go back and you can see it. And I think it's, it's awesome that we're going through Genesis on alternate Wednesdays. So we see how this corresponds. These, these Psalms can correspond to that. So I hope you're being blessed as I am with the teaching and the studying of the Psalms. And um, why don't we just uh, close in a time of prayer and worship. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings of the Psalms, Lord, and the practicality of them. Lord, we thank you for everything that uh, the psalmists have gone through on, uh, um, on our behalf, Lord, that we can learn these.